Welcome to the Bradenville Church of Christ podcast. We are a family of believers striving to be the first century church in the 21st century. We're located at 285 Church Street in Bradenville, Missouri. Please join us for Bible study Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. with worship to follow at 11 a.m. Wednesday night Bible study is at 7 p.m. Now, please enjoy our lesson. We're going to continue our discussion about personal evangelism and, and our focus on Philip, which we started last week. Because Philip is... Um, he may not have been the first one chronologically, but from, from the start of the New Testament, when you start reading through the New Testament, from Matthew all the way through Revelation, he is the first one that's called an evangelist in the Scriptures. And we talked a little bit about what that word means. You meaning, or ev, well, how we would pronounce it, you meaning good, and angelon is the, the Greek word for the messenger or the message. Uh, that's where the word gospel comes from. The word gospel comes from the Greek word uh, evangel or evangel, which means the good message. And an evangelist then is someone who spreads the good message, who takes the good, the good word out and he spreads it around. And we talked last week about what Philip did. I always forget to get this out of order. I try to sing without my mask on and I try to preach with my mask on. That's <clears throat> very difficult to do. Talked a little bit about what Philip did to be a good evangelist last week. Now, what I want to do this week, and you notice with the scripture reading, I just had Colton read two verses, and both of them had a similar theme to them. Did you catch the theme? Philip went up to Samaria, went down to Samaria, excuse me, and he preached Christ to the Samaritans. As Philip was in that chariot with that Ethiopian eunuch, and they're looking at the book of Isaiah. And the eunuch asked the question, is, is, this, is the writer speaking about someone else or is he speaking about himself? And Luke records for us in Acts chapter 8, verse 35, that Philip began at that passage and he preached Jesus to him. Now, I told you this last week, as a, as a preacher, I would love to have an outline of those sermons. <laughs> I'd love to be able to go through them and see what did Philip preach that made his preaching so effective to the Samaritans. What did Philip preach to the Ethiopian eunuch that his, made his preaching so effective that while they were riding in the chariot and they come across some water, he says, see, here's water. What does hinder me? What keeps me from being baptized? We don't have those for us. The Holy Spirit didn't see fit for, to record those for us. But we do have the scriptures that we can look at and we can surmise what Philip might have preached. Now, I'm not telling you this is exactly what Philip preached, but if we were to try to recreate these sermons, what would we expect Philip to preach? That's what I want to do today. I want to look at a, at a couple of sermons that Philip might have preached to convince these people, to, to convince them of the identity of Jesus and the necessity of obedience to the gospel. And so that's what we're going to do today. If you want to flip your bulletins over to the back, we're going to begin, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in John chapter 4. We're going to be in Isaiah 53 and some other passages in Isaiah. But we're going to kind of skim through two sermons. So you're getting two for the price of one. I think that's a pretty good deal. But we're not going to preach the full sermon. We're just, oh, Joe's doing the math over there. He's trying to figure out make sure it is a good deal. Um, I want to just kind of summarize or outline what a sermon to the Samaritans might look like. What a sermon to an Ethiopian eunuch might look like. And so to begin with, let's, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 8, and let's remember who it is that Philip's preaching to. Um, he's come to Samaria. He's preaching to the Samaritans. Now remember, last week we already noted this, 
there's a, a very antagonistic relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it goes back to their to their the ancestors and the fact that, that they were at one time related to each other, but some mixed blood came into the line, and now the Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds. They saw them as essentially dogs. And that's a challenge then whenever you're trying to build a relationship with somebody, when you're trying to share the gospel with them, and your people, maybe not you, but your people consider their people to be dogs. That could be a, a, that's a, a big gulf to, to span. So what would, what would we use maybe as an example to see what would somebody preach to a Samaritan? Can you think of another time when somebody had a, a spiritual uh, conversation with a Samaritan that we can look at and kind of see an example of? Hold your finger in Acts chapter 8 and play, or put your marker there. Let's go to John chapter 4. And let's remind ourselves of a conversation that Jesus had with a woman at the well. You remember in John chapter 4, Jesus has left Jesus has left Judea. He's headed to Galilee, but he's got to go through Samaria. Now, that, what's interesting there, verse 4 says he needed to go through Samaria. Technically, he didn't need to go through Samaria. I don't mean, I'm not saying that Matthew's wrong here, but most good Jews would bypass Samaria altogether. You might recall we talked about this last week too. If I was in Galilee and I wanted to go to Jerusalem and I was a, and I was a, a Jew who hated the Samaritans as much as my, my brothers and sisters, I'm going to go to the other side of the Jordan and I'm going to go down through the, 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 that region over there and come back in around Jericho so I can completely bypass Samaria. But Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Why? Because he's going to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Jesus uh, came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And you recall this conversation. Jesus says, give me some water. She says, you asking me? You're a Jew, and you're asking a Samaritan woman? Now, just for the sake of time, I don't, want to, I don't want to dive too deep into this, but I want to point out some things here that show us a, a connection that a, a Jew preaching the gospel to the Samaritans might make to help build a bridge. Look at verse 12. He said, this is the woman talking. Actually, verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? One thing we need to note about the Samaritans is they still trace their lineage back through the patriarchs. Do you see a connection now that you can use? Do you see something that we could use as a, as a, uh, a common ground? Now, if we're going to preach the gospel to somebody, we're always looking for common ground. How do we relate to people? How do we find some, something in, of commonality that we can tie to? And this woman understands that they came through Jacob... Now, the Jews may not recognize their lineage. They may not be recorded in a manner that they can directly trace their lineage back through, you know, through their parents and the grandparents and great-grandparents, but they know that they have some tie to the patriarchs. And that's going to be important. Even though that they were tied to the patriarchs, though, they were not considered God's people. The Jews didn't consider them to be God's people. And so they were not a people, you might say. Hosea talks about this. 
he talks about this, this promise that God's going to make to these people who are not a people. And I want to just, while you've got your finger there on, in, in John chapter 4, I want to read to you a passage from Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 2 about what God's going to do for these people who are not a people. Verse 10 of Hosea chapter 1. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Now you jump on over to 2.23, and he says something similar over, over about this. He says, and I shall, Then I shall sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. So as Philip's preaching to the Samaritans, one of the things he can remind them of is that they have a connection. Now, over time, that connection appears to have been broken. It's, it's been, there's, there's worldly distinctions, and we talked about this last week. There's worldly distinctions that man will use to try to segregate people. But God's going to call people who are not His people back to be His children. And the key is those who are willing to search for Him, those who are willing to find Him, those who are willing to be obedient to Him, those who are willing to submit themselves to Him, Isaiah would talk a little bit about this. Now, the reason why we're going back and looking at these Old Testament passages is because, remember, what Scripture would they have had then? They wouldn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to go to. They had the stories, and Philip could relate to the stories of Jesus. But if you wanted to show to the Samaritans that God's going to, He's going to bring people to Him. He's going to restore those people who were not a people to Him. He's going to build a kingdom. Or as Isaiah talks about, He's going to build a house. He's going to establish a mountain. That's going to be important to the Samaritans too. We'll see in just a second. Isaiah chapter 1. Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1. I keep going too far. I'm talking and not turning pages. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. I want you to remember that, okay? The mountain of the Lord's house the, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people should come and say, "Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord of, of to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so one of the things that Philip could show to the Samaritans is that God is building a house. He's building, in a sense, he calls it a mountain. And he's going to establish on the mountaintops. Now, think about, again, about the conversation that Jesus had with this Samaritan woman. One of the questions she had was about worship, remember? She said, our fathers have taught us, our fathers have demonstrated to us that we worship on this mountain. And you say that we should worship in Jerusalem. Mountain, worshiping on mountain, I believe this is Mount Gerizim that he's talking about. Worshiping on that mountain was important to 
the Samaritans, because they weren't allowed to go. They, they, weren't, they weren't accepted in Jerusalem. And you remember what Jesus said to her? She said, he said, there's coming a day when you won't worship on this mountain. You're not going to worship in Jerusalem, but you're going to worship God in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And so whenever, whenever we see this, this emphasis on the mountain, that, that's a connection to the Samaritans, but it's a draw also to the idea that God's going to establish a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that's not established on a physical mountain, a, spirit, a kingdom that's not going to be established in a physical place where you have to go to, where you have to go around people that aren't hospitable to you. God's going to draw people to Him that are hospitable to each other. You notice what He says there. Nation's not going to have war against nation anymore. This kingdom is going to be a kingdom of peace. Could you imagine being a Samaritan and having lived all your life in antagonism to the Jews? Where every time you see a Jew, you want to go to the other side of the road or they go to the other side of the road. Because that's what you've been raised to. And Philip comes and he preaches a doctrine of peace. He preaches a doctrine that shows unification in the house of God. There's a lot of promise. There's a lot of hope that comes out of that. And so from there he could talk about the fact that Jesus came to establish this kingdom. Now remember, they don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but Philip does have the teachings of Jesus. He, he has the doctrine of Christ. And you remember what was essential to the preaching of Christ was the kingdom of God. What was the first thing that we see Jesus preaching that we have recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You go through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus again is going to talk about attributes of the kingdom and characteristics of the citizen of the kingdom. And so as Philip preaches the gospel to these Samaritans, he's, he's showing them that there's a kingdom that has been established, that all nations can flow into. Even the dogs of Samaria can flow into this kingdom. And Jesus has established it. Now, one of the, one of the connections again that we see between Samaritans and Jews was the fact that the Samaritans were looking for the Messiah as well. You remember in that discussion when Jesus was talking with the woman, He says, I want you to go and get your husband and bring him here. And I'm gonna, we're going to have a conversation. You remember what she says? She says, oh, I'm not going to work out well. I've, been, I've had five husbands and the man I'm with now is not my husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You remember what she said to him then? She said, I, I, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Then they get into the discussion about worship. But you go on down in John chapter 4. And after they've had the discussion about worshiping on the mountain or worshiping at Jerusalem, and Jesus says in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Do you notice anything in there that's interesting? The Samaritans were looking for the Messiah. And they were looking for this Messiah to teach them all things. They recognized that this Messiah was coming not just for the Jews, but it was coming for at least the Samaritans. She didn't say there that we're watching for the Messiah so that he, she can teach the Jews all things. They were looking for the Messiah to come and teach them all things. And so now we've got some connections, right? 
We've got some connections that we can use to hang spiritual truth on. The Samaritans had a connection through the patriarchs. They had a concept of worshiping on the mountains that, that, would, that could be related to the idea of the kingdom, the mountain of God, the house of God being set up on the mountaintops. They had an idea of worship and that they should worship God. And they were looking for the Messiah. And so as Philip is preaching the, the gospel here, and he's, he knows that these people are looking for, for the Messiah, he can go back even to the patriarchs and he can relate. You remember that promise that God made to Abraham, to our fathers, he could say to them? You remember that, that seed promise that he made? And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He didn't say, and to your seeds, as, as Paul would write in Galatians chapter 6. He's not talking about the Jews were going to be a blessing to all mankind. He says, to, and through your seed. Remember that Messiah that you're looking for? Jesus Christ is that seed promise. He's the fulfillment of the promise that God made to our fathers, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. He's come. And Philip preached a message similar to this. I don't know, again, we don't know exactly what he preached, but he preached a message that had connections in it that allowed the Samaritans to see that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, He's the Son of God, and they believed it. And we noted this last week, so we won't spend time going through it because I'm running out of time and i still got one more sermon to give you. They heard it. They believed it. They obeyed it. Right? And they were baptized. Philip preached Christ to them and they obeyed it. Now let's go on down to the Ethiopian eunuch. How would you preach the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch? What would you say to a, to a, a eunuch from Ethiopia... Now, we know something about this Ethiopian that maybe we don't always... Um, we know it, but maybe we don't always attribute it to, to the preaching of Philip here. Uh, Acts chapter 8. Catch what, catch what Luke records here. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch under, of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship. What do we know about this eunuch? He is a worshiper of God, right? Now, whether he was a proselyte, whether he was, maybe it, whether he was born a Jew, we don't know. Whether he was converted to Judaism, we don't know. There were at those time people, there were at that time people who were called God-fearing people who worshipped Jehovah, but they weren't true Jews. Whatever this man's religious state was, he had a familiarity with the God of the Bible. We know that because he went to Jerusalem worship. We also know because he's reading a book. He's traveling down the road and he's reading the National Enquirer. Right? He's listened to a podcast. He's got the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. What does what's what's almost teed up here now for Philip? He's got a gospel message ready, almost ready pre-made right there, right? And not only that, he's not reading over in Isaiah chapter 64. He's not reading back in Isaiah chapter 10. 
He's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. The scripture doesn't say that because they didn't have chapters and verses, but he's reading from the segment that we would know as the suffering Savior. He says there, the place of the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch is reading this, and he's wrestling with this passage. He's trying to figure out, who is he talking about here? This is an amazing person. This person is willing to, to take my suffering on him. How, how can he do that? Who's he talking about? Philip comes up and says, do you understand what you're reading? He's oh, how can I? Let somebody explain it to me. Is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? And Philip started at that passage and he preached Jesus to the eunuch. I would love to have heard that sermon. I'd love to have heard that discussion. We don't have it recorded for us, but I want to show you some things that, that could have been part of that message. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 53 now. We're going to spend the bulk of our time, the rest of our time in Isaiah. How would you use Isaiah 53 as the launch point to share Jesus with a man who's traveling back from Jerusalem? He's just left Jerusalem uh, worshiping there, and, and he's going home. Um, what tends to happen when you leave worship? I don't know about you, but I, whenever I walk out those doors, I've, I'm rejuvenated, right? I'm probably more focused on things of a spiritual nature than I am the rest of the week. That may be kind of sad to say, but I'll just say it. We're probably more focused on things of a spiritual nature when we leave worship than we would be at the rest of the week. And this man has just left Jerusalem. He's left the center of worship for the, Jew, for the Jewish world. And so you could, you could probably speculate here that this man is tuned in to the things of God. He's got a heart that's ready to hear good news. And so Philip takes that scroll and he's, he's right there in, in, in Isaiah chapter 53 and he begins to show the characteristics of this man. Now we just read the passage. He said he was, he was like a sheep before it shares his silence, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah just rolls that scroll just a little bit back and he finds the column that talks about the suffering Savior. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The first thing he could tell us this person is going to be somebody that when man looks at him, he's going to they're going to reject him by and large. He doesn't fit the mold of what we're looking for as a person who would be a military leader, a political leader, a religious leader, a, a, a person who's going to turn the world on its ear, right? He's despised and rejected. He's, he has no former covenants that we would even desire him. He's not a handsome man like Saul. He's not a rudy man like David that we would want to follow. He's not a person that we would even have any attraction to, and we're going to despise this person. But that's not the, the end of it. He reads on, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray, and we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I've got kind of bulletized out there some aspects of this person. He was a suffering servant who was willing to take the punishment for others. I don't know of a person who's leaving a religious service, he's leaving worship, who wouldn't be touched by that message. Can you think of a person who would, after hearing the idea that somebody would suffer for me, would say, yeah, I'm not interested in hearing any more of that story. That doesn't interest me at all. Isaiah here, and Philip through Isaiah, is going to paint a picture of a man who is willing to take on my iniquities. He's willing to take on my transgressions. He's willing to bear them. And he's going to bear them before God. He was smitten by God. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Here's the passage, right, that we just talked about. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep for its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This wasn't a man who deserved these things. He wasn't a, he wasn't a, a criminal. He wasn't a transgressor. He wasn't a malefactor. He was a person who was innocent, but he would suffer for the people. That has to touch the heart of any reasonable person. But who was this person? Uh, we can go on down through verses 10, 10 through 12, and we can see that God. it's going to please God to smite him. It's going to please God to put him to death, but it's also going to please God to reward him. Because he is going to share the spoils, not just with himself, but with others. Who is this person? Who would be capable of bearing the sins of mankind? Not Isaiah. It's no man, really. It has to be somebody who has characteristics of God. And so Philip could take the scroll. And this might take a little while because it takes some time to roll through the scroll. But let's say he scrolls back a little bit to Isaiah chapter 9. And he goes over there to show about a child who would be born. And this is not going to be any normal child. This child is going to be born with... He's going to be born with royalty in him. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And he could pause right there and he could go back and he could, he could show from Isaiah chapter 7 that this child is going to be born of a virgin. Now he's starting to build the framework in which to introduce Jesus, right? And he can go back and he can talk about the evidence of Jesus, the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was born of a virgin. But he's, going to, he's, he's showing here that this child would be born, and here's the characteristics of the child. And the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's the key, right? Man couldn't do this. Man couldn't bear the burden. Man couldn't bear the weight of sin. Man couldn't be the sacrifice that would please God. But God himself could. God in the flesh could do that. This child's going to be mighty God. He's going to be everlasting father. He's going to be the prince of peace. And of, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and, upon his, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forward, the zeal of the Lord of 
of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so he then shows that there's going to be a person born who's going to have the government, this kingdom, the weight of it's going to be on his shoulders. And there's going to be no end to it. Now he could go back then to Isaiah chapter 2 and he could look at that house, that mountain that would be built on the tops of the mountaintops. And it would emanate from Zion that the law would go out forth from Zion. We've already looked at that passage. But you see how from one scroll he can take the prophecies and he can preach Christ to a man who's interested in hearing about Jesus. And in between there he can intermingle then the story of Jesus, how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. How he was born of a virgin. How he was preaching and teaching the coming kingdom. How he made prophetic statements about the opening of the kingdom at Pentecost. And how he then went to the cross and he died and he bore the sins of, of, of the people. But you know something that was, that's, that's interesting here? About this eunuch in particular. When you come from a background of Judaism that teaches that your only, your only way to participate in the covenant of God is through your lineage, right? And you have to trace your lineage back to Abraham. And we don't know whether this man was able to do that or not, but we know he's not going to have any children, and his name is going to be cut off in the line of the Jews because he's a eunuch, and he's not going to have children. I'll show you a passage that Philip could have used to give this man hope. Let's go over to Isaiah chapter 55. And we're going to skim through both of these just again for the sake of time. 55 and 56 are some interesting passages that speak about the abundant blessings of God that He's going to pour out on His people who are part of this kingdom. I love how 55 starts out. Ho! Right? Let me get your attention. If you're not paying attention, let me get your attention. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you have no money. Come buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Who? With you, God says. Anybody who comes, I'll make a covenant with you. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David, indeed I have given him as a witness to the people, and leader, a leader and commander for the people. Who was the, who was the sure mercies of David? It was Jesus, right? He's the, the fulfillment of the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to David. He is a leader and commander of the people. Surely you shall call a surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. I'm going to skip over the rest of the chapter because I want to get to verse. I want to get to chapter 56. He could show the eunuch that in this kingdom there is going to be great blessings. Great blessings for all who would come to the Lord, all who would be obedient to the Lord, and particularly the foreigner and even the eunuch. Look at chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice 
and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Don't let the person who is separated from the Lord say, The Lord doesn't want me. In this kingdom, the Lord wants everybody. Notice the next passage. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. What's a dry tree? It's a tree that's not going to bear any fruit, right? The eunuch sees himself as a dry tree, unable to bear fruit for the Lord. And the Lord's going to say this to the eunuch and the foreigner. To the eunuch, thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name that is better, or better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to have kids, whether you're going to have a, 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 a descendancy, whether you're going to have anybody to carry your name in Israel because the Lord's going to give you a better name. He's going to give you an everlasting name. He's going to give you a name that's going to hang on you. And you can be a part of that kingdom. Whatever Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, it was effective. Because as they were traveling down the road, you remember the story, he saw the water and he says, what hinders me? What keeps me from being baptized? You know, essentially what he's saying is, what keeps me from obeying the gospel? Philip said, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He said, I do, right? That's the summer. That's, that's the southwest Missouri version of that. And they went down in the water. Philip and the eunuch, Philip baptized him. They came up out of the water. The, Philip, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. That's the end of the story for the eunuch that we know of. But Philip preached a message to him that was effective in bringing him to Christ. It's important for us to think about context. How would we share the gospel with a person? And what would be the context in which we would build the story of Jesus for them? Each person is different, and each person is going to respond differently to the gospel. And so it, it, it may seem daunting to think about the fact that we may have to tailor the, the message to the people. That doesn't mean we're altering the message. That, that Philip didn't go off to some other book to teach Christ. He preached from what he knew and what the eunuch knew and that's all that we're called to do is to preach the gospel have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ Jesus as we saw in Isaiah he came down to the earth to bear your iniquities before God to take your sin on his back and in doing that he gave you an opportunity then to be a child of God to be a part of the kingdom, to be a part of that mountain that he would build on the mountaintops, to be a part of the house of God, to have an everlasting name. Have you done that? Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God with all your heart? You're willing to turn away from the sin in your life, to confess the name of Jesus, and to be washed in the waters of baptism. If you're willing to obey the gospel, we can help you with that today.
Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. For more information about our church family, please visit our Bradleyville Church of Christ Facebook page. We hope to see you soon. Till then, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We hope you have a good day.